You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Laborwave Radio is an independent podcast producing bi-weekly episodes discussing work and labor organizing from an anti-capitalist perspective. We're one of the podcasts listed on the Channel Zero Network with tons of great anarchist-themed podcasts. You can check out the full list at channelzeronetwork.com. If you enjoy our show, please support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts including stickers, illustrated zines hand-drawn by a resident artist, and original-made LaborWave t-shirts. If you can't afford to support the show in monetary ways, you can still support us by following our content on social media and giving us likes and reviews on things like SoundCloud and Apple Podcast, because that really helps us reach new listeners. Joe Burns, welcome to LaborWave Radio. Hey, thanks for having me on, Alex. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because I've been reading your book recently, Reviving the Strike, looking forward to getting into Strike Back. And you make a very persuasive argument about the need to revive militant labor strikes. So I want to like hear more of your thoughts on that. But I think some definitions are in order because you create a distinction between a traditional labor strike and modern expressions of labor strikes. So can you just tell us more about like what is a traditional labor strike and how is it different from what passes today typically for strikes in the US? Yeah, I mean if you if you look back at classic labor theory and you know it's really guided unionism for its first, you know, 100 plus years uh, up until the 1990s, unionists were clear that a strike needed to stop production to be effective. And the reason is simple. If the employer is allowed to continue production in the case of a factory or continue to, you know, serving food for customers in restaurants, then you can go out on strike and withdraw your labor, but you're not really economically impacting the employer. So, you know, one of the things I did in Reviving the Strike is I looked back at classic textbooks from the 1950s and 60s, and they were all clear that unions uh, needed a production stopping strike. And typically that didn't just involve the withdrawal of labor, but it involved using tactics such as, you know, plant occupations, mass picketing, uh, or, you know, successful secondary, I'll explain later, boycott activity, but, you know, methods to actually win the strike. In recent decades, probably since the mid-1990s and beyond, and largely in response to the difficulties that unions had striking under the existing set of laws and with the lack of militancy, what happened was a lot of unions started to think they were being smarter. So they would do these tactics like one-day strikes became very, very prevalent, you know, especially with the Service Employees International Union. If you look at the healthcare statistics about the length of strikes, from the mid 1990s on, you know, up until, you know, I think there's been somewhat of a change over the last five, six years in terms of going a little bit incrementally longer. 
but they basically started doing these sort of one day strikes, which were, you know, which they were good because people were striking, but it's fundamentally different, right? Its goal isn't really to stop production. I mean, the employer, you know, and most employers, especially the ones where they're using it, they can rearrange people's shifts, make people work overtime. You know, the employer is going to continue functioning as normal. You know, it might cost them a little bit more money, but certainly it's not calculated to, you know, economically bring the employer to their knees. Uh, it has other benefits, you know, it's part of, if it's part of an overall campaign, it gets publicity and uh, you can use it as part of a campaign. So it's not like it's a tactic that shouldn't be in the toolbox, but those are kind of the main categories. And of course that then it starts expanding beyond hospitals and stuff. Once it gets picked up by the fight for 15 and the fast food strikes, which become, you know, then it becomes not workers in the hospital all striking for a day, but it becomes a handful of, you know, maybe uh, fast food workers in a, in a city and a bunch of staff around there and nonprofit people, and they're declaring a strike of the entire industry. So it, it, it kind of goes from a tactic that at least was based in the workplaces to something that became a lot more and more media driven as it went along. Now it seems like it's devolved even more into the hashtag strike. I mean, every Every year, I feel like I see like people just kind of calling for like uh, hashtag general strikes and everything is all symbolism and spectacle. So I, do you think this is kind of the logical outcome of really shifting away from waging traditional labor strikes? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, once you start divorcing the strike from workplaces and workers, then it becomes a tool, you know, which... And in my latest book, which is coming out in January, which is called Class Struggle Unionism, you know, I talk in a lot more detail about how this whole trend in the labor movement has kind of moved away from sort of shop floor struggles and, you know, went more towards what would be more the concerns of nonprofits and, and so forth. So these strikes become not a vehicle necessarily for the workers to, you know, which traditionally it was like, you know, you work in a workplace, you get together, you say, you know, we're going to shut this fucking place down, you know, and that's what you do. Um, but it becomes a lot more, the strike becomes generated from outside the workplace to meet the needs of various organizations who may be trying to pass progressive legislation. And then this fits in with media, but it's all done by these sort of, you know, people who think they are savvy sort of, you know, strategists you know, rather than, you know, you look at the classic strikes of history, you know, it's someone standing up in a room and it's like, we need to shut this place down. And why does it matter so much to return to that, to those kind of traditional labor strikes? Because throughout your entire book, it's like a full analysis of reviving the strike requires these types of strikes to reemerge. Why does it matter so much? First of all, we have several decades of experience showing that these strikes don't work these sort of demonstration strikes, these sort of what I call often fake strikes, don't really work in terms of reviving unionism. And the reason is simple, that for collective bargaining to work, you need leverage against the employer. You need to be able to tell the employer at the bargaining table, if you don't do X, Y is going to happen. And the Y is, you know, we're going to shut the place down. We're going to be boycotting you. We're going to do whatever it takes to bring economic harm to the owners who really only care about profits. So that's why, you know, when you look at the heyday of the strike, you know, these were 
you know, often massive affairs, you know, it's another problem with strikes have been, there's a lot of problems with why the strikes have been limited, which I can get into. But, um, you know, you know, like, so you got 500,000 steel workers striking U.S. Steel in 1959. Massive confrontation goes on six months, basically shuts down the national economy, which was a lot, you know, pretty geared on steel and production back then. President Eisenhower has to intervene, you know, it becomes a crisis for the uh, ruling elite in the country. So just think of the the sort of power of that sort of strike and compare it to, you know, the sort of one day strikes and that have minimal economic impact. You know, it's really apples and oranges. Well, and uh, I'm really excited to hear that you're coming out with Class Struggle Unionism. That's a book that I'll definitely be reading soon. But I'm kind of curious to know more about how did we start deviating from this path? Because you mentioned you know, there's restrictions on these traditionally labor strikes. If there's like a short story to provide, what is that story about how we started really moving away from powerful strikes to what we have today? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, look at what happened over the decades from the 1940s through the 1970s, um, or even the late 1930s, is that the labor movement became, you know, increasingly governed by this sort of web of legal restrictions. And court rulings and laws like the Taft-Hartley Act, you know, passed in the late 1940s, basically changed the rules so that a lot of the most successful union tactics became illegal over time. And a lot of it, some of it was blatant, you know, like, you know, legislation getting passed, but a lot of it was subtle chipping away by judges who tend to think a lot more like management than like workers. You know, that's the class that they come from and ultimately the class they represent which, you know, is the rich or the billionaires in society or the capitalists. But they still did militant strikes. I mean, if you look back and, uh, you know, look back at the strike records, you know, management didn't usually permanently replace striking workers. You know, it started to uptick in the 1970s and permanently replacing for folks who aren't familiar with it is there's a sort of legal fiction that says you have the right to strike. And management can't fire you, but they can permanently replace you, meaning that you can they give away your job. You're you're out of work. After a year, they can decertify the union. You don't even get a vote in it. Um, but, yeah, you have your job back. You know, if there's a vacancy down the road. Well, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not really the right to strike if they're able to, you know, basically give away your job for striking. So, you know, you get you get things like that passing. But management didn't really use it. And there was a lot of picket line militancy and mass picketing all the way through the 50s and 60s. But, you know, over time, that gets uh, chipped away. And by the time you reach the 1980s and management launches this vicious union busting campaign, you know, they basically want to de-unionize most industries. Most industries, a lot of them had these sort of elaborate national agreements or, or multi-employer bargaining that might have been like the mine workers, a couple of national agreements covering hundreds of employers, 500,000 truck drivers under the National Master Freight Agreement, levered, levels wages in the entire industry, provides a good way of life. And management launches these attacks. But the problem is the sort of bureaucratic you know, labor movement of the time was totally unprepared to fight it. They didn't have the tactics. And back when I was starting out in the labor movement in the 80s, you know, we thought everyone was lame and the labor movement was so lame. But, you know, you look through industry by industry and, you know, folks actually fought some pretty vicious battles. You know, the workers, Greyhound workers go on strike a couple of times, you know, and I was out on some of these picket lines. You know, these folks were fucking hardcore. 
Excuse my language. I know it's fine. This is off our game here. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's just some really militant strikes. You know, I talk a lot about the Hermel strike. That was like the first one I interacted with down in uh, Austin, Minnesota. Meat packers go on strike, end up fighting their national unions. You know, so so these strikes all have these sort of raw class on class character, and in most of them. You have this conflict between solid rank and filers or often even local officials who want to take on the company and, you know, the national unions who are often a lot more accommodating. They're in bed with the company or their way of life. So there's a lot of conflict within the labor movement. Those of us on the left of the labor movement, you know, they say, which sides are you on? You know, so back then, you know, like nowadays you can be a progressive staffer and everything's cool because you know, there, there, there's nothing that jeopardizes your job. Back then, it was like, you know, you're going to support the P9 workers, you'll be fired. Anyway, I'm just saying it was a lot more intense. But so we end up trying to fight these battles, you know, in the context of the system that's set up against us, right? So so Phelps Dodge workers, uh, you know, out in mine workers out in uh, Arizona, you know, one of the early, you know, big strikes, you know, they try and, you know, rush the hiring hall when they're hiring scabs, you know thousand of them surrounded, but fucking Democratic Governor Bruce Babbitt brings in the National Guard. Back in the day, the labor movement would have mobilized and fought the guard and, you know, kept the scabs up. That doesn't happen, you know, strike after strike, we, we lose. So what's the lesson you draw from that? Some people and, you know, uh, me among them and a lot of the left of the labor movement, you militant rank and filers were we need to build a militant fighting labor movement, you know, that violates law. There, there was that trend. But there also developed a trend, and this is where I'm getting to your answer. Sure. There, there also developed a trend in the labor movement, which was, I mean, largely spearheaded. There was a lot of these sort of 60s activists, new leftists who went into the labor movement. They might have started out in the rank and file, but got staff jobs or maybe even become rose in the union bureaucracy through the local president and stuff, you know you know, which is good in and of itself, but they drew a different conclusion is there must be a better way. A way that was led by them, correct? By them, by them. Yeah. So, so they thought that they were going to strike smarter and fight smarter and develop all these corporate campaigns and these, these tactics. And if you look at all the shit that was put out there in the period, you know, it's like that they knew the organizing techniques, they knew how to do corporate campaigns you know, that was going to you know bring management to their knees. They were going to, you know, the sort of one day strikes developing through that, you know, but the problem is all of these tactics, you know, were good, but they didn't really, they didn't do two things. One is they didn't really economically harm management like we need to. And secondly, they weren't very threatening to the union bureaucracy, right? Because we're not saying you need to violate the law. We're not saying you need to engage in worker-led militancy, no matter where it leads, you know, which is uncomfortable to the institutions. You know, what we're saying is, oh, these bright, young, smart staffers are going to, you know, help us out of, out of the way. And, you know, probably the epitome of it was, you know, the push to organize the unorganized, you know, which was the big push in the area. And then in the mid-90s, you know, with SEIU and the organizing in student AFL. So anyway, so, so that kind of is a whole new development where instead of, you know, striking our way out of it, it became, we're going to organize our way out of it. Yeah. And I think that that's probably, well, you know, I know you get a lot of pushback, uh, but I imagine one of the places you get a lot of like contemporary pushback is uh, your kind of assessment that organizing is insufficient 
and maybe even secondary to what we need to do to revive the labor movement. So like, why is organizing our way out of this crisis not really an option or not sufficient to the task? Yeah, I mean, the problem is, you know, when you talk about certain things, such as saying organizing is not the way out of it, or when you say social unionism is not the path forward, you know, obviously those are topics. It's like going after bread and butter or whatever, you know, or apple pie. It's like those are <laughs> for those on the left, those are like, well, of course we're for organizing, of course we're for social unionism. But the problem is they're all part of this sort of a bigger trend that shies away from you know, direct workplace confrontation. I mean, I, I, I have in Reviving the Strike, you know, I guess I'm, you know, take issue with the approach like Stephen Larner from the SEI, former SEIU strategist, you know, put out that it was all about raising density and you needed to organize density. But that's not really consistent with, you know, classical union theory where, yeah, you need to raise density, but in order to raise density, you need, you know, militancy and getting the workers on your side and you need tactics capable of raising wages and so forth. And I think they wanted to skip all of that and just go towards getting a higher uh, percentage organized, which led them, you know, down this sort of slippery slope, you know, that ultimately ended up with their lead, former leader, Andy Stern, really getting into labor management cooperation, because when it became all about density, it was all about you know, then it became about organizing employers rather than organizing, you know, workers to fight employers. I'm remembering a line that I really liked. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it in the book where you pointed out that it's been proven that workers really aren't that interested in joining weak labor unions in order to have some future potential gains. I think that's kind of like hits it right on the head right there. Well, it's, it's, I mean, some of the organizing mentality is we're trying to convince workers to join weak and declining unions, you know, and it's like we're trying to, even if people think they're the greatest organizers and they're all about, you know, getting together core and this and that and all this BS, you know, which isn't, I mean, it's good to do, but I mean, it's, it's more about, we're trying to get them to join us. Like we're trying to make them do something we want them to do. Whereas, you know, I think, and, and this is really in the train of my new book, but you know, the, the classic, you know, when I came into labor and sort of labor leftist sort of view is, you know, you go into the workplace and you're more assimilating with the workers and learning from them and you're, you know, kind of joining a movement and you're not leading it and you're trying to fight and become one with them. You know, it, it, it's sort of a different approach where, you know, we're trying to get in there and be sort of oppositionists or agitators and kind of, you know, pick fights with the boss rather than our job is to go into a workplace and, 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 you know, we're the ones who are saying, come join us and we're going to have you join us. I I think they're different approaches. You know, it really does seem like there's just been this tremendous shift in the mentality of like what unions are for and what we're trying to actually accomplish in the labor movement between like today's dedicated enthusiasts for labor versus like yesteryear's. Even Samuel Gomper, as you point out in your book, would be probably considered more radical on the question of trade unionism today than like most progressive staffers in union officialdom. So I kind of want to talk a little bit more about that because you have a great chapter on like the labor theory of value, labor not being a commodity. Like what was the kind of guiding philosophy and understanding of unions and their purpose in the past as opposed to how it is understood today? 
look at it, I think, you know, folks like Gonkers and some of those folks are mixed, you know, historically and, you know, have a lot of uh, negatives. But, you know, I, I, I think if you look back at the early labor movement, so even the AFL in the early decades, you look at the old union constitutions, you know, there's a, there's a lot more discussion about seeing their unionism as a as part of a struggle between exploiters and exploited. You see, you know, embedded within the union theory, you know, these concepts like labor is not a commodity. And of course, you know, anyone who uh, studies much Marxism knows that, you know, the sort of commodity nature is a defining uh, of, of labor. It's one of the defining features of capital. But so when the labor movement was saying, in my mind, when they're saying labor is not a commodity, they're really striking at the fundamentals of the system. And what they what they were saying is like is like, look at under the so-called free market system of capitalism, you know, employers go out and purchase whatever items that they need to produce a product. You know, so they'll get soybean or they'll get uh, you know raw steel or they'll get whatever commodity you know, which is something you can buy undifferentiated on the general market. And the problem is that for employers, they see that human labor is just like that, and that's what. Ultimately, that's what employers believe, right? Um, they believe that human labor is just another input into the production process. But you know, the labor movement back in the day uh, rejected that because they said, "Look, labor is attached to humans, right? It's inseparable from humans. Plus, you're giving away, so you can't separate it from the human. And then when you go to work, the worker, their labor is tied in with them, so the employer can't really buy the worker." For that eight hours, they buy their ability to work for eight hours. And, and even to this day, that's why some of these people who are talking about doing these one day strikes outside the workplace, they kind of miss out on that fundamental feature, which is that, that there's an incredible struggle that takes place at the workplace between employers who are trying to drive workers more, who are denying their humanity, trying to control them, and workers who rebel against that. And it's not just about the wages, it's about it's about the fight for productivity and it's about what happens, you know, respect during the day, which is a feature of employers trying to drive people harder. So, so anyway, so they have this whole philosophy and they even like do this big legislative push and they get it passed in the Clayton Act. And so the law of the land, it's still the law of the land is human labor is not a commodity. Of course, like any of these legislative attempts, you can pass a law, but you know, they spent all this time and effort at the end of the day. It didn't, not like it changed anything, but at least I, from a consciousness level, it represented a sort of different view. You know, on the on the other side of the coin, Gompers did, you know, move to the right over the course of his career, um, became what, you know, folks called the labor lieutenants of capital, you know, where he was in the National Civic Federation and and adopted more of the philosophy of, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, you know, which kind of accepts a system of exploitation as opposed to the sort of what I call class struggle unionists, so like the industrial workers of the world or the left, uh, you know, formations in the 1920s, you know, which are more, you know, seeing unionism as a part of a fight against this sort of exploitative total system. You're listening to a Channel Zero Network podcast. The Channel Zero Network is a decentralized network of anarchist podcasts, bringing you analysis of current events, media criticism, rebellious music, interviews with academics and authors, how-tos, and so much more. 
This is The Final Straw Radio, a weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show broadcasting out of occupied Saligi land in southern Appalachia. Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. You've been listening to Rebel Steps. I'm your host, Liz. Believe in yourself, trust one another, and get organized. Hello, this is Linda. You're listening to Subversion 1312 on the Channel Zero Network. Whether you are anarcho-curious or a hardened militant, CZN's ever-growing roster of programs has something for you. Head over to ChannelZeroNetwork.com to find out more. So if I were to say like, okay, I agree, the strike has to be revived, but then I look at the what you call the system of labor control, like labor law relations under the United States, incredibly restrictive, prohibited against strikes, if I were to look at that and say, like, we need the strike to come back, what makes me wrong in my analysis by saying, and the first step to get there is reforming labor law through the PRO Act or things like EFCA? Like, why is that not the right immediate task at hand? One, I mean, we've, we've got uh, a lot of evidence that, you know, sort of lobbying Congress and trying to get labor law passed isn't going to happen. The, after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, the labor movement, you know, tries in the early 50s, throughout the 1950s and 60s, you know, when their labor was a lot stronger to amend it, you know, and they actually end up getting it a little bit tighter in 59. I mean, there are some union members, right, stuff in there, which is good, but but um, the, the tightening of the hot cargo provisions, which are these provisions that unions got around the secondary boycott thing, but by saying, we don't have to handle struck goods. So it kind of gave some leverage while Congress closes that loophole. So basically it goes the other direction. And then, you know, in the 70s and the 90s and beyond, there's been all these pushes under Democratic president. So it never happens. It's not going to happen this time. All these people, even, you know, solid leftists are talking or semi-solid leftists are talking all about the PRO Act and the PRO Act passing like six months ago. Don't hear a peep out of them now, you know, because now I think they recognize it doesn't happen, but there's no plan B. But how does labor law happen? That's the big topic of my second book, Strike Back, because the record is clear that, you know, public striking by public employees was illegal in every jurisdiction in the United States in the late 1950s in the federal government, where it was a felony to strike. Yet millions of workers engaged in strikes. There's tons of stories about how these sort of militant strikes, you know, like in Hawaii, uh, one of the first states passed collective bargaining, 10,000 public workers struck and they surrounded the state house chanting while the lawmakers were inside voting on a law to legalize striking. So, so it's pretty clear that striking is what led to labor law passing. And I think that's pretty clear even going back to the 1930s. So if you want, if you really want to get labor law reform, then let's bring back some militancy in the labor movement. Which means basically we have to break the law in order to get reforms. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see a path, uh, you know, forward for the labor movement that doesn't involve um, reviving uh, traditional tactics, uh, e- even though they happen to be illegal under this illegitimate system that we have. You know, how we build a, that sort of labor movement capable of doing that is uh, one of the big questions, you know, and that's why I I don't think it's particularly helpful, you know, to have this whole trend in the labor movement saying, oh, no, we can, 
you know, if we just do bargaining for the common good, you know, that'll be, it's like the latest great idea. There's all these sort of late great ideas, but at a certain point you're BSing, right? You know, it ain't going to work. So, well, maybe you don't know it's not going to work, but we, it's not going to work. So let, let's come on. So, so you can keep on talking that way, but at some point there has to be a reckoning, like, and, and I think it has to start on the left wing of the labor movement that we need to get off of this whole, you know, sort of organizing approach and get into, okay, what are the fundamentals of class struggle unionism and, and why is that different? Which is why my natural progression was, you know, from reviving the strike, strike back, and now it's to class struggle unionism. It's all part of the same discussion. Talking about going after apple pie, saying things like bargaining for the common good is not going to work. I want to like give you the opportunity to elaborate because I'm certain there are listeners that are very motivated and inspired by it. I have my doubts too, but you know, people point to things like Chicago Teachers Union, UTLA, bargaining for the common good, look how militant it is. What do you have to say in response to that, the people that are like gung-ho advocates for that approach to reviving the labor movement? Well, I mean, one, in the public sector, public sector striking and private sector striking and bargaining are fundamentally different. They're two fundamentally different things. If you read classic trade union theory, 70s textbooks, everyone understood that, right? Private sector strike, you're attempting to shut the employer down, bring them to their knees, stop the flow of profits, so forth, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. In a public sector strike, in a typical pure public sector strike, you strike the employer, they save money, they don't lose money. They save money by you striking. They don't have to pay your salary. They just don't provide the goods to the public. So public, uh, and I've done it. I've participated, helped out with a clerical strike and the employer saved a shit ton of money, right? Because they weren't paying the wages during that time. It's not like they did extra work or whatever. They just provide less services. You know, so, so when you think about that, Public employees need to have strategies that are, you know, sort of formulating broad class demands and that, and that are bringing the community onto their side. So they have a very public form of bargaining. And that's really what the Chicago teachers did. The sort of nuance with it is, you know, they, they never, when they started out, they weren't talking about the Chicago teachers like we're bargaining for the common good. It was more like, you know, the students learning conditions or our teaching conditions or the students learning conditions or vice versa. But, you know, I think some theorists and some of the same ones who have been recycling uh, stuff for 20 years have kind of picked up on that and taken what's a essentially a good idea in the public sector and sort of repackaged it and tried to put it forward as a way forward for the labor movement. So I'll say two things about it. It's complete nonsense as applied to the private sector. I mean, it, yeah, you should be a little bit more broad-based. Yeah, this and that. But most of the stuff I see is some staffers sitting around and tacking on demands like, oh, we're fighting for green cleaning materials or whatever that they know is like PR. I, I'm not saying that the workers don't want the environmental aspects of it, but I'm like, it, you can kind of tell like the bad ones where you look at the list, you can look on their website and the ones where they just start tacking shit on to the, to the normal demands. But ultimately, it's like, okay, so what you're bargaining for the common good? One, there is no common good, right? There, there's class good. There's what's good for the working class in this country, which is bad for the ruling class or the elite or the rich or whatever you want to call them, the billionaire class. So we don't have a common good. That, that's one thing. But even setting that aside, 
So what? So so you get all the public on your side. So what if everyone is like, okay, the evil corporation sucks. They still permanently replace you. They replace you with scabs and they they crush the strike. The Detroit News uh, lockout in the mid-90s, credible support um, from the community. They managed to slow down the, you know, sort of uh, operations of the of the newspaper in the city. They still got crushed. They were up against a national corporation. I did the, I went out to the Jefferson, uh, that poultry worker strike in 2004 out in Wisconsin. Everyone's got signs in the community in support of the strikers. Okay, well, they had community support. It's not enough to win a strike against a giant corporation. So, So that's kind of it for the private sector. For the public sector, I think it's a lot more nuanced, but you, you really start thinking about it is they really start like like twisting it, right? Originally, it's like workers are dealing with items out of their, their sort of working conditions. Teachers are dealing with issues in their classroom, and they're saying, hey, it's a lot more than just what's in the classroom. It's in the community. So the center of focus is still the classroom, but it's emanating out there and developing what I call broad class demands. This bargaining for the common good kind of flips it around and, you know, there doesn't really need to be a connection to the workplace or, or the workers. It, it could just be middle class staffers coming up with it. You know what I'm saying? It's a essentially correct strategy in public sector, but it's a fundamentally incorrect theory and it's completely wrong for the private sector. Not saying we don't need broad class demands. Class struggle unionists believe in broad class demands. We believe in you know, sort of broadening out our fights, fighting for the entire working class. But we also believe in bargaining coming out of the workplace and taking on particular capitalists or particular employers. So I think that's the fundamental difference. But yeah, it's a, you know, you start saying it and people are like, well, I'm going to be against that. Right. (laughs) Well, here's another thing I want to ask you to just kind of keep throwing some darts at the board here that like make people feel bad. But you also talk about the insufficiency of the strategy of like electing new labor officialdom, like labor leaders that are militant and progressive to lead us out of the crisis of the labor movement today. What makes that an inadequate strategy moving forward for reviving the labor movement? Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, there's, you know, sort of a wing of the labor movement of the left of the labor movement, which has focused a little bit more on reform movements. And, you know, obviously most trade union officials and trade unions are bureaucratic, um, out of touch with the members, unwilling to fight, much, much corruption in the labor movement. Uh, Look at the UAW scandals recently. That's something people don't talk about enough, about just how screwed up you know, the, these offices full of like people who do nothing, you know, and are content with sort of that, you know, most most international unions, you know, you're going to find a lot of that. Not that there aren't some good people, but it's, uh, uh, you know, the institutions are not uh, fighting institutions. So, you know, so clearly part of any move to revitalize the labor movement is going to take significant conflict within our unions and new leadership uh, of the labor movement. The problem is when your strategy becomes too much or purely about just electing new officials, you know, you're, you're electing them within the context of a system where they're bound to fail. So you can elect new leaders, but they face the same constraints that everyone else does, you know, that they don't have an effective strike. There's no militancy. They're tied into, you know, they, they can't violate injunctions because they don't want to 
you know, legitimately, they don't want to threaten the union treasury or put all the staff out or what about the other bargaining units who rely on the union. So just changing the leaders uh, isn't isn't doing it. I think uh, Bill Fletcher and Fernando Gapacine, you know, I think in their book, uh, Solidarity Divided, which was written around 2005, I think they 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 have a fairly good discussion about this, that, you know, a lot of the problems with the sort of you know, so-called, you know, change in the labor movement, you know, with the new voices in the 1990s and so forth, um, was that it really didn't uh, challenge the structure and function of of trade unionism. It it focused a lot more on sort of bringing in progressive leaders and, you know, it didn't work. Thinking about the strike and how to revive it, you know, we've identified how labor law reform is a pitfall. That's not a viable path forward. Electing new leadership is also insufficient to the task. Can't organize our way out of the crisis. So this is where I think, like, I've heard some people kind of get stuck when they read your work saying, like, well, what are we supposed to do? Where do we go from here? If we need to revive the strike, if these strikes are going to require a militancy that goes beyond the bounds of the law, you know, how do we get there? Like, what are some practical strategies? You know, looking back through history, like I did with reviving the strike and strike back, you know, we can draw lessons from the past, right? Certainly we know, and, you know, the alternative title, uh, but my publisher didn't let me do it for strike back was how to violate labor law. Um, because that's really, which probably would have sold more books and been more, <laughs> but, but that's the, you know, that's really the lesson from the 1960s. You know, how was it that millions of workers were able to go out on illegal strikes, you know, so that's where you come with, you know, the slogan out of the period, you know, there's no such thing as a illegal strike, just an unsuccessful strike. Um, and I think you can see that from the private sector as well, when, you know, when you get thousands of workers in motion. More recently, you know, I w- was up in Minnesota at the time, so I went over to Madison, Wisconsin during the Wisconsin uprising, which was back in it's a long time ago now, I guess, but it was back in 2011-ish, uh, back when uh, the governor, Scott Walker, was attempting to, uh, and ultimately did, um, gut labor law for public employees. But yeah, you have it starting with teachers who do a sick out, you know, which is basically an illegal strike, you know, starting in Madison, but spreading throughout the state. You have um, thousands of workers and, you know, student allies, you know, taking over the state capital. Um, rotunda, you know, you went inside there, it's just thousands of people chanting and they were there for weeks, you know, and then you have, you know, 100,000 people marching around the state capitol and the union bureaucrats weren't there for at first, you know, so it was kind of like people just started marching in order, you know, you, you know, so so that's a more recent example where they were able to strike without repercussions. Look at the red state strikes is another example, you know, so back in what's that, 2017, or, or, or so, um, we have teachers striking in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, all these unlikely places. Strikes are illegal. Fired for striking, right? Um, in, in in most of those states, yet I, I don't believe any of the teachers, you know, that I'm aware of got fired, right? So they were able to do it because they 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 had crucial components. There's power in numbers. There's militancy. They didn't back down at crucial points. Uh, although you can look at the results in the different states a little bit differently. But nonetheless, that that that's the general lesson. So, I mean, they did it, right? So so we know what can be done, but those look a lot different 
than the strikes that we're used to, you know, which is striking, you know, some um, dis- distributor workers go out on strike, you know, in some warehouse, you know, and, and 50 of them go out on strike and they put up a picket line and, you know, it's kind of a soon forgotten from the media, you know, they get the injunction, all of that. So how do you get back that different type of strike? I mean, I think that's really the question. And it's a particular question for, you know, those of us in the labor movement at whatever position we're at, or, you know, the rank and filers or staffers, I mean, how do we, you know, it's easy to say, let's organize or let's do this and that, because that's something concrete, right? Um, But how do you do that? And to me, it's like, okay, what does it take to start building a trend in the labor movement, which, you know, traditionally, and, and it's out there, but you know, what, what, what is class struggle unionism? What are the features of class struggle unionism? How does that differ? And one of the things that, and I won't get too much into my new book, but what, one of the things that, that, that I talk about is, you know, the class struggle organizing approach. And a lot of people talk about the militant minority. You may have heard the term where, you know, folks are trying to revive that, you know, it was like this idea of the you know, sort of smaller group who's kind of the spark plug in the labor movement, you know, um, you know, going back to the 1920s. Um, and, you know, William Foster and the Trade Union Unity League, which was tied into the Communist Party, but engaged in a lot of, you know, sort of bitter strikes in the 1920s, helped pave the way for the 1930s. Well, so a lot of people kind of view it as like, okay, well, they got together and they were good fighters and they pulled together the good fighters. But when I think about it, the core of what they did and, and the core of their approach was, they put forward a sort of different way of fighting for the labor movement. That wasn't just words, but it was actions, but it was kind of like, how do we build a different labor movement? What sort of demands do we put on the labor movement to engage in militancy, you know, and taking on employers. So, and I don't know, you look at, I've been around a while and I'm not saying I have all the answers, but it just seems to me that I've been around this stuff for, you know, 20, 30 years, you know, and, you know, time passes and you can, you can sit here and do your organizing or do this and that, but ultimately we know what kind of labor movement we need to take on capital, right? So how do we collectively start taking steps to, to build that? And even if they're not, people want to be all pragmatic, you know, the, the push for industrial unionism was like a, you know, 30 year push, right? Um, It wasn't just something that came up in the 1930s, you know, you had the whole development of the industrial workers of the world, you know, from the early 1900s, you know, up through their heyday and 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 beyond, but you know, really uh, through the teens, and but you also had within the AFL there was, you know, there were a mixed role the Socialist Party, but also other you know sort of leftists or militant workers within it. So you had a healthy every convention you were debating the issue of industrial unionism, you know, healthy debate as healthy as you can have with the top-down AFL, but you had this sort of push, you know, a fight for industrial unionism. And that took decades. And then in the 1920s, you have the experiments of the, led by the, uh, by the CP, uh, which is the Communist Party, which was in its infancy back then. But, you know, either to first to try and educate within the AFL to sort of borrow from within you know, what some people took, uh, Bill Hayward said, who was the IWW guy, said, I, he had a little poem like, you know, you bore from within the AFL, I'm told, and pretty soon I bore and bore and there's nothing left but a core or something. You know, it's like it's hollow and rotten inside. 
point being, they fought for, you know, and then finally in the 1930s, you know, the, the concept of sort of industrial unionism took hold among the working class, right? You know, people rejected the sort of, you know, a lot of the craft union approach and even the craft unions were forced to sort of, you know, go towards a semi-industrial approach. Well, I do want to bring us to a conclusion. And on that note, there's one thing in your book that is concrete that I want to just hear you talk about a little bit more, because I think it's if the AFL-CIO or the existing the existing mainstream move, labor movement is going to have any role in this, it seems like this might be the practical way forward for them. Uh, and that is in your advocacy to form and back new independent organizations. So one of the risks that you know existing mainstream unions don't want to take on is the risk of getting injunctions for violating labor law because they have big assets, they don't want to lose all their money. But you point out that one way that has been kind of experimented with to avoid this is to just simply create new organizations independent of them and like give them some of their gracing and backing. So that'd be interesting to talk about. But on that as well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about as we think about moving forward and reviving the labor movement, how much of this really is the task of new unions, new militant unions forming outside of the existing mainstream unions? Is that what it's really going to take? You know, I tend to think it's going to take both um, an inside outside strategy, you know, so on the first point, look, you know, back, and it's kind of interesting, you know, back in 2004, the AFL, the SEIU, and I started to even remember UFCW, uh, this is how relevant they were. Um, you know, these <laughs> unions formed a big split. They were going to form change to win. It was going to be this alternative federation, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, they probably just didn't want to pay per caps, but they, they, the dues, but they, they split off. But right before they split off, there's this big debate in the labor movement. We're going to, we're going to take new views. So they publish all these papers and that's one of them. But now you try and find that paper. I found it on internet archive. Basically, uh, you know, this stuff gets, uh, you know, swept under the rug. You know, that debate is long gone. They're not even thinking about it. The problem is they don't even think there's a crisis now that Biden's in. You know, there's a little bit of a crisis a couple of years ago when Trump was in um, among the AFL, you know, because they were under attack. They didn't know what to do. Now Biden's in. They're getting invited to the White House. You know, I, I think the sense of crisis is gone, you know, at least for a couple of years until Trump, too. But uh, <laughs> sorry. But uh, that, that's a pretty valid prediction. So look, at, I, I, here's the here's the issue. Some of the efforts that have you know taken place outside the AFL. So the IWW modern incarnation that, and I'm friendly with them. I like them, but you know, the worker center sort of approach, you know, they've been independent, but it hasn't necessarily been marked by militancy. And it's not like building a militant movement outside the labor movement. So I think there are some of the same processes that affect unions and, and thinking affects them. So I don't really view it as like we have a, you know, a true alternative uh, out there. And uh, this is no diss on the IWW <laughs> for the record, but uh, you better it, watch out for the comments that come out on this episode. <laughs> well, no, it's like I, you know, I look at there's a there's a healthy chunk within that, you know, where folks, uh, you know, probably, and I think I, you know, they, I, I think they know it, or folks within it know it. It's not like everyone agrees, but that for a while there was like too much of a reliance on the NLRB, you know, and sort of filing charges, and which you know, us sort of more traditional trade unionists had moved past that like 
15 years, but maybe they had to go through that. But, um, you know, the direct action and the small stop stuff, you know, that's good, but you know, we're, we're not, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about organizing, you know, some coffee workers at one location, you know, after, you know, tons and tons of effort, you know, what, what does it take? It takes something different, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, I think one of the best unions around is UE, even though they're small and they haven't grown or whatever, but the United Electrical Workers, which were driven out of the AFL in the 50s, is one of the left-led unions, but they still have the sort of ideology of class struggle unionism. They put out a good pamphlet a couple of years ago, you might have seen a year ago, called Them and Us. I think everyone should check it out because it's basically class struggle unionism and it lays it out in really good form. But yeah, it's it's going to take both. Um, but but then again, the leftists who say we can just abandon the labor movement, well, it's you know workers come to unions, you know, and 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 unions are you know are are the primary vehicle for working class struggle, and and they will continue to be for the foreseeable future. So, you know, I don't think you can write off the you know major labor federation, which you know still has millions of workers. Well, our guest has been Joe Burns author of Reviving the Strike, as well as Strike Back and the forthcoming Class Struggle Unionism. Is that also from IG Publishers? No, that's Haymarket. Oh, okay. So you're going to get more sales then. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing against IG Publishers. Uh, Really excited to read that one. Folks should really check out your work. And thanks so much for taking the time to come on Labor Wave Radio and talk about how to revive the labor movement. All right. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be on, man. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Labor Wave Radio. And we just wanted to leave our listeners with a reminder that you can support our content by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash labor wave. And if you can't afford to support us in monetary ways, you can still support us by following our content on social media and just sharing and liking the episodes produced. You can get a full list of all the Labor Wave episodes ever made on our website at laborwaveradio.com. And you can send us any comments or questions or inquiries that you would like, even show pitches to laborwavenews at gmail.com. I love to hear from folks that are listening to the show, so please do not hesitate to reach out. I enjoy it thoroughly. 